You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Food with Mark Bittman, Big Picture Science, and Fork in the Road. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Of all history's prophets, none has a greater degree of credibility than H.G. Wells. With his predictions of moon landings, ray guns, sonic signaling devices, is Wells right again in his prediction of dangers to come in Empire of the Ants? In this fantastic tale, Wells tells the chilling story of a colony of ants who feed on atomic waste, causing them to grow into large, voracious monsters. Let's get out of here! Come on! And these giant ants are actually able to control you. Gentlemen, science has agreed that unless something is done, and done quickly, man, as the dominant species of life on Earth, would be extinct within a year. Yes, cities, nations... Even civilization itself threatened with annihilation because in one moment of history-making violence, nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. For born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous. There is no word to describe them. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. One of my very favorite giant monster movies has to be Them, the 1954 American film about a colony of ants that become invasive giants after atomic testing in the American Southwest. Its cool documentary-style approach to what might have been a very silly premise turns this creature feature into something with more gravitas than it ought to have. 
Ants are sometimes annoying, sometimes painful, but when you get past the tiny specks moving around on the counter aspect and zoom down to their level and see them at work, what emerges is a complex social structure and organizational network far more intricate than one might imagine within the cognitive capacity of these tiny little insect brains. Yet there they are, coordinating repairs, hunting, their battles, and more, as though they were a single complex organism with each ant, with the exception of the queen, being built with redundancy and flexibility. So let's talk about ants with Professor Jack Longino and see what we can learn on today's Monster Talk. We're excited to be talking with ant specialist Jack Longino uh, from the University of Utah. And we're going to be looking at ants uh, in their real biological state. But I promise you, I have a few questions related to monsters and monster movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Jack. And uh, I want to let you know, too, that uh, well, the reason I tracked you down is that my eight-year-old son received an ant farm for Christmas last year. And hey. he, he is obsessed with ants now. And I can't believe how much he's learned just over the past couple of months he really seems to to know so much and have so many questions about uh, ants. And so I thought, I'm going to have to find an expert to bring on the show and uh, ask some of these questions. Well, that's great. It, it, it sounds like an excellent portal into natural history. So Definitely. How long before you can harvest their hard work? What, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do we uh, know about ants? We look at the ground, we see an ant. I think most people know what an ant is, yet... There's creatures that look a lot like ants that aren't ants. So what makes an ant exclusively an ant? Oh, yeah, I mean, you can answer that in various ways. Um, I mean, technically, you know, in terms of the, the, the entomology and the evolution, um, they are one branch on the tree of life. They're all classified in a single family. Um, probably had an ancestor back in the Cretaceous that, you know, with some little creature that made a nest in the ground, and and um, and then the the kids started, you know, and provisioned a nest with some food, like a like some wasps do, of bringing paralyzed food back or or captured food and and putting it in a, in a little nest in the ground, and and then some of the kids started hanging around and 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 helping mom, you know, or or mom might have. Kind of forced some of her kids to stick around and help out and so you get the emergence of sociality of, of being you know sort of a a group of insects that's that's truly social in the sort of scientific version um and then all the descendants all the ants we see in the world today are you know, are descended from that origin and you know it's it was something that was incredibly successful um and as any kid knows, you know, ants have taken over the world, you know, unless they live above the Arctic Circle. Um, uh. And they're just super abundant. And and they've just sort of gone on diversifying and and kind of occupying the world, all kind of retaining this, you know, this this aspect of of this insect style of sociality, which, which is actually quite different from ours. Yeah, I, I noticed that in some ways there's a lot of parallels between ants and termites but i think i remember a documentary saying that termites are closely related to cockroaches and ants are closer related to wasps is that real that's that's exactly right okay um, i mean termites are you know essentially I mean, you can almost think of them as social cockroaches 
Mm. Uh, they're, almost, they're sort of embedded within, you know, the diversity of cockroaches. They're a special kind of cockroach that also sort of evolved this, you know, so this approach to life of being social and likewise became super abundant um, and kind of major ecosystem players. The ants are a separate branch. They're over there near the, like you say, the wasps and the bees. Mm -hmm. um, and there's within that, within that branch um, of the wasp and the bees, there, you know, are, are thousands and thousands of species that are not social. But sociality has has cropped up in that group. Ants that we're familiar with are in that group, and so honeybees. You know, and a lot of the bees are social. Um, the yellow jackets and relatives, those are kind of an independent evolution of sociality. Um, and then there are the ants and, and they're, they're their own, you know, kind of separate branch that, that has done the sociality thing. Amazing. So, Jack, do we know how many species there are worldwide? And I've also heard, and I'd like to know if it's true or not, that there's one species that is specifically female. Yeah, let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, <laughs> there are there are about I forget the exact number, but we're it's in the ballpark of eleven or twelve thousand named species. Wow! And, and that's you know my research interest. I'm I'm interested in the diversity of ants. I, I just love that the way they've spread across the planet and diversified into so many ways of living, all retaining this this underlying theme of sociality, but but then in terms of their ecology of what they eat and where they nest and how big the colonies are, those things vary all over the map. And, you know, so, you know, we know of 11 or 12,000, um, you can, you know, life is kind of quite finely partitioned around the planet and, and we keep finding new species um, and often taking what we thought was one species and looking closely and discovering that there's all kinds of variability within that. And they're, you know, to the ants themselves, they see a lot of different species in what we as humans might see as just one. Mm -hmm. And so increasingly we're teasing apart, you know, those, those sorts of details of the species diversity. Um, in terms of, you know, is there a female species? Well, but one of the, you know, truly bizarre things about, the whole branch of insects that are the ants, bees, and wasps is they they have an odd form of sex determination um, where the you know they you know the females make eggs, the males make sperm, they can they mate, and sperm and egg can go together to make offspring, and those offspring are all female. So a fertilized egg is always going to grow up to be a female. And, but the odd thing is that unfertilized eggs can develop and they develop into males. Um, and so all male ants are the product of unfertilized eggs from a queen. Ah, that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. And the fact is that, you know, and one of the interesting things is that all ant workers, you know, when you see ant workers running around, those are all females. Mm. They, you know, even the soldier ants are, are females and they are daughters of the queen. And the only difference between them and they're all sisters um, and the queen, you know, there may be new winged queens that are produced when the colony is ready to reproduce and they're sisters of the workers. 
And the only difference between the workers and the, and the new winged queens is sort of the conditions when they were growing up. And, and, and you know, if they, the larvae, if the, if the immatures get treated one way, they grow up to be workers. If they get treated another way, they grow up to be queens. So there's this, you know, there's this weird and very interesting, you know, sex determination system. But there are some species that, you know, can produce with reproduce without males. Um, and so, you know, when you say there's some species that are are female species, you might be thinking of that. Of, right. Okay. Of, of the occasional ones where they seem to be able, the queens seem to be able to, you know, lay eggs with the full set of, of genes in there that are going to produce, you know, more females, more workers, queens without any fertilization without any males in the, in the system. Speaking of the sociality of ants, I, again, watching lots of documentaries, I seem to recall that most ant behavior is, is or can be controlled through chemicals and that they sense chemicals and are, are, I guess they're driven by pheromones. And I'm just fascinated because, you know, my day job, I do a lot of work with computer modeling and um, automation. And, and I know that there's many things that can be reduced to algorithms. And I'm, I'm curious about, uh, is that social behavior, are there some pretty reliable models for how that breaks down? And, and I mean, they don't seem like an ant could have much cognitive power. And I've got 50 million questions, obviously. So I went, <laughs> <laughs> one, I, one at a time. I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in that, the, the modeling of their behavior, and I'm interested in their cognitive capacity versus what we perceive to be intelligence versus what's just rule-driven. Yeah, well, there's some there's good stuff coming out. Um, yeah. I, you know, and it's, you know, and I know, you know, kind of, robotics people have been interested in, in, you know, can they learn something from ants? Because, you know, the, the fact is you, you know, you get what are supposedly, you know, thousands of little autonomous units, you know, these mm -hmm. individual workers, and there's no program, you know, there's, there's no, you know, the, the queen is not a director, you know, she's not handing out a list of tasks each morning, you know, mm -hmm. at the staff meeting. Um, it is this kind of super organism where once the colony's going, you know, the queen is sort of functions as the ovaries, you know, as, as, you know, one component of this living thing. And the workers all seem to run around doing their individual little things and out come these emergent properties, you know, like a particular kind of ant nest or, you know, a certain kind of foraging. And so, yeah, people are interested in how do you program a bunch of independent little little bots, you know, you know, each with their the same little program to to then produce these these structured systems. Mm -hmm. uh, but getting inside an ant's head is pretty hard. Um and you know, I I think we're pretty clueless in many ways and and about the the behavioral sophistication of ants and and if anything what keeps being demonstrated is that for plenty of ant species they're not, you know, just simple little programmed units that they, you know, are are have quite complex behaviors. Um, you know, that you know, it does seem like the the ants like and, and what seems to be the kind of evolutionary trajectory is to make the workers simpler and simpler. You know, sort of making, you know, instead of making a few complex workers, make a whole lot of really simple ones, kind of throwaway workers. 
and their vision is reduced. And like you say, they do rely heavily on chemical communication. And you can tease apart little chemical rules of, you know, these chemicals say follow a trail. You know, these chemicals say alarm, you know, run around stinging things. Uh, but what are, what's increasingly interesting are, are the, you know, ants that, especially those that have large eyes and, and are out there foraging and clearly using vision um, and assessing their surroundings. And so it's now been shown lots of ants actually use the landscape. They use landmarks to recognize where they are and to remember where they went wow. and, and then remember how to get back home once they find some food. Um, is that related to the bees behavior or is that convergent? Do you think it's convergent? Okay. You know, you don't see, I mean, nobody has found a waggle dance in ants. Um, mm. That, that whole business of the waggle dance and orientation so far, it seems to be unique to that, to honeybees, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so they figured that out on their own. I'm, I've kicked an ant's nest. They're more, or uh, they're more um, anarchic. I think they're anarchists compared to the order. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but always, that's right. Yeah, but always amazes me is you can kick an ant nest and it just seems like chaos. And mm -hmm. often if you look close, they seem to be doing nonsensical things. You know, like they'll be pulling something in opposite directions. Um, or one group will be hauling things from point A to point B and another group will be picking up the things in B and hauling them back to point A. Um, you know, you just see this kind of silliness. But if you wait a while, you know, the, the net effect is that order is recreated. Uh, you know, the, you know, the little larvae all get piled up in a certain place and the nest gets rebuilt and, mm -hmm. and, and they kind of, recover and and carry on so so somehow it all works together well you're making me think jack that uh my son told me about a youtube video that he'd seen a lot and uh it would be where someone would be uh would draw a little circle with chalk around an ant and say that they were doing it to confuse the ant and that the ant would stay in the circle so I'm not sure if you're familiar with that meme <laughs> or that that story. What do you make of that? I'm I'm not familiar with it. Okay. Um, the you know I guess if the chalk were sort of repellent, you could maybe keep an ant inside of a circle with it. I don't know. Um, sure. <laughs> um, you know there are things with 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 the ants that do you know leave these odor trails to food. Um, mm. There are all kinds of little experiments you can do with those where you know if you you know let them start forming a trail and then move the trail they'll all start piling up on one side like where'd the trail go and and then gradually reestablish it um you know various things like that um so uh, i've got a colleague um who's who's been sort of using the latest you know kind of ultimate tools in molecular biology to, you know, investigate the genes involved in social behaviors in, in, in ants. And he has, um, I think he's, he's at Rockefeller University, um, a guy named Daniel Cronauer in his lab. You know, they have this model ants where they model ant system where they can keep these colonies of ants in the lab, you know, hundreds of them, mm -hmm. but they were able to, you know, use CRISPR, these genetic tools to kind of, knock out of some of the 
genes that are involved in ants detecting odors. Hmm. And then, and then, you know, the ants kind of lose it. They, they, they lose their, their ability to be social. They, they, they kind of become sort of dumb ants, you know, who, who can't follow an odor trail and, and just sort of don't work very well. So. It, speaking of their behaviors, I, I'm assuming there's something like a rule or algorithm around how they build their nests. It, it, is it, I mean, I'm, ass, I'm making assumptions. I'm assuming that they're somewhat random inside, but yet within a species, you would see similarities. Is that true? Um, you know, the, the variety of nest building is, is fabulous. And, and nobody has a clue how it evolves. Uh, you know, or sort of what particular genes are involved. But you get this, you know, there's the classic ones that are underground, you know, where they're digging a hole in the ground and digging chambers. Uh, but there are lots of ants that nest above ground, especially in the tropics where I work. And and so they'll carve out little tunnels and dead stems. Some of them will carve out tunnels and live stems. Some will make their own nest. They'll, they'll make, they'll get, chew plant fibers and make a, a, mm -hmm. a paper mache, almost like a, a yellow jacket net, hornet nest or something like that, and make these big, big nests out of paper up in the, in the canopy. Um, so they have all different sorts, all different ways. Um, the ones that are underground, there does tend to be some similarity in some fundamental structures across species, where when they're underground and they're excavating, their individual chambers tend to be uh, sort of shaped like a pancake. You know, where they'll have a flat floor and a ceiling, uh, but not be too high. Um, then there'll be a little hole in the in the floor somewhere, and a tunnel will kind of corkscrew down to maybe another pancake chamber that's a little bit below that. Um, but then you can see all all kind of variations on that theme across lots of species. Yeah. And the the master at figuring that stuff out is is Walter Schenkel at Florida State, where he pioneered this approach of using molten metal to actually cast ant nests in yeah. the, the Florida sand, you know, pouring, you know, melted aluminum down an ant nest. My daughter loves that so much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it I do too, fun. but, but it, it yeah. looks like the weirdest, you know, like you say, you get the flattened chambers and the tunnels and, and they're so, super cool and surprisingly big. And uh, yeah. And that's, that, that's exactly what I was wondering if you could just, take a bunch of those and compare within the same species, you know, do you see patterns that are similar, you know, or, or are they just randomly, not random. I imagine there's not random, pretty mm -hmm. good rules for why they build things the way they do. We just it's don't. Know they yeah. They're quite organized. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, Walter, you know, started doing that for the science, you know, to sort of do exactly that, this compare species and what, you know, what, what commonalities there were, but then, you know, people noticed them and went, well, these are like works of art. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. and, and, and he started providing them for museums and stuff, and you know, as, as display objects. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, the, the, the nests are very organized and, you know, it's, and often, you know, typically the, the larvae, you know, the immatures are, you know, distributed in very specific ways. And you can see this gradation where, the queen will be in the lowermost chamber, you know, most protected, and the little tiny larvae will be near her, and they'll move. As the larvae grow, they'll move them into 
higher and higher chambers, you know, until, you know, they'll finally, you know, emerge as workers somewhere, you know, in a higher chamber away from the queen. I don't know, all kinds of interesting things. So uh, I'd love to talk about some of the stranger species. Now, if you can't tell, I grew up in Australia and we had some pretty nasty kinds of ants there, like the uh, fire ants and bullet ants. You and... have, you have bull ants and, or, or jack. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jumpers, yeah. you've got some. You've got some excellent ants there. <laughs> Yeah, I guess nasty for some people if you've, you've been bitten as a kid, uh, but certainly fascinating, I'm sure, for a person such as yourself. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've you know, I've, I've only, um, you know, been in Australia once, and I, I got to see one nest of a bulldog hen. Um, yeah, they're pretty impressive. I, I haven't pretty been stuck, and I don't want to be. Yeah. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about some of these ants, like uh, the bullet ants, I've heard that their stings are lethal. Is that true or, or not? No such thing. I mean, well, there's a bullet ant, but no such thing as a lethal ant bite ant sting, unless you are that's good to know. an individual that's hyper allergic to all right, you know, bee stings and stuff. And then you'll need sure. an antidote. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Yeah. But but the bullet ant is this thing you know that i've experienced a lot and been stung once um oh they, it's it's uh it's a really interesting species it's basically it's sting is so powerful just because it's one of the biggest ants in the world and and you know so it pack it's got a lot of venom it's it's like a big hornet or something bigger and um and and it's got a powerful venom that really hurts and will throb mm. for a few hours um but uh but there's no, you know, there aren't any 
any ant venoms that are like toxic, you know, like like some spider right. venoms are. You right. know, there's none that'll just kill you. And and in fact, it's almost impossible to get, you know, to die, you know, from too many ant stings. Yeah. Well, it's it, funny you mentioned that. That that this reminds me when in the 1970s, uh, yeah, I was a kid. And I remember all of these special TV episodes and news briefs about they're coming. The fire ants are coming. There's nothing <laughs> we can do. And now I remember them showing up on my grandfather's farm in the early 80s. And he was where, really where bad. Where was that? He, he's in, uh, we're in North Georgia. North Georgia, okay. And so they had made it up to here and he was really mad about it. And they would, you know, every now and then a cow would step in a in a nest and get, you know, a bunch of bites. Oh, but Ooh. but I remember also that their projected northern migration was stymied by the cold weather, so they didn't go all over the United States back then. But I've noticed, uh, I don't know if you've seen this in the news, but apparently things are warming up, and I just got to wondering, <laughs> yeah. is the range of the fire ant moving north? Um, I don't know if it is, but I'm not particularly worried. Um well, we survived I, down here. I'm, I'm not that worried either. <laughs> yeah, but I, it's funny. You know, I, I'm from Florida. I grew up in the South. And uh, and so, you know, fire ants arrived. Um, and, you know, there's a whole story of there of overreaction. Um, the, um, you know, and I, I grew up on a, in a ranching family, you know, so worked with with ranchers and um and it was always these tail these fire ants came and they became really abundant and you know they all say oh these fire ants are killing our calves and 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 whenever i ask them be nice like i I did have you have have one of your calves been killed by fire ants they says well no no but i heard from this other guy down the road and you know i don't think it ever happened (laughs) You know, a calf actually got killed by fire ants. Um, no, but there was a, you know, there were native fire ants in the southeast, you know, that are still there at low density that are nearly identical to the introduced ones. Wow. Um, like even as a taxonomist, you know, a specialist has trouble telling them apart. But there is this phenomenon when you, when you get a newly introduced species, sometimes they just explode. It's like they've escaped their their natural enemies or something. Sure. Georgia kudzu and, and, uh, Australian yeah. rabbits and... <laughs> exactly. And they become super abundant and everybody thinks the world's coming to an end. Um, and in the case of fire ants, it led to, you know, some real environmental catastrophes. Like it was, it was terrible. I remember in Florida, you know, when they decided to, to broadcast this insecticide Myrex over the entire state, you know, to kill the fire ants and, mm-hmm. It was just a mess, and it, it was terrible. And I remember the bombers, you know, flying over the house. And yes, the, the sprinkling sound of Myrex on the driveway. Really, I actually and saw course, footage of that. Yes, yes. Wow, like and, literally military vehicles dropping uh, yeah. insecticide. Amazing. But you know, and and the thing about these, you know, ant ant insecticides is, I mean, the the main control for the best control for virus is the native ant community. And so when you killed off all the ants, it was like throwing gasoline on the fire. You know, the fire ants came back bigger and stronger than ever. 
But it's also the nature of these introduced things. You give them 20 years and they tend to kind of die down. They they accumulate. I mean, nobody quite knows what is going on, but it always seems like after an initial wave, they kind of fade back and they they never go away. They're they're mm-hmm. a permanent resident now, um, but they're not, you know, something that's going to take over the world. Uh, and it's like that with kudzu. You know, seems like they're taking over the world. It's because they like roadsides, you know. And uh, mm. I think it's the same with fire ants. You know, they're just they're part of the southeastern ecosystem now. They'll mm-hmm. they'll be there and not as abundant as they were in the '60s and '70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, you know, and not a major concern now. I don't think. Mm. Um, makes me think of cane toads in various parts of Australia as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, cane, I, yeah, cane toads are great. You know, what's amazing to me is they were introduced to Costa Rica, where I've done a lot of work. And mm-hmm. when I was working on, on, you know, in the 1980s, they were super abundant. And now when I go back, I don't see very many. You know, they've they've kind of had their wave and uh, hmm. and are now kind of less abundant than they were. Well, that's that's interesting. I certainly still see a lot around uh, Australia. But uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, but I think for us to talk about ants, it would be really remiss of us to to not talk about their superhuman strength. So, uh-huh. could you tell us a little bit about this? And it seems to be something ants are so famous for. Lots of trivia about yeah. uh, how much they can carry. You know, I I hate to be a. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> I, I hate to be a you know kind of a, a, a you know one of my exam questions in my entomology class is you know is I put up the statement you know an ant can carry three hundred times its weight. Um, why is this not an amazing fact? <laughs> um, and because it introduces some wonderful physics um, regarding scaling laws. And I remember learning about scaling laws in college, and it was just an epiphany. It was mind blowing. I loved it. Um, it made such such sense. And the, the idea is that if you if you made an ant, you know, the size of you know, say a human or or maybe some maybe you know a cow, um, but kept all of the dimensions the same, the proportions, just scaled it up. You know, it probably couldn't stand up. That mm. uh, a lot of that strength is associated with being small, and lots of insects are strong, and can pick up hundreds of times their body weight, and, or you know, and a flea can jump three hundred times its body length, and so forth. Um, well, that makes sense because they're little. Um, well, they're also hydraulic with an exoskeleton, which we know is <laughs> pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, but we've, you know, we've got a pretty good system too. I mean, this this bone system with muscles and levers is is pretty awesome. Um, but the the scaling business, if so, I mean, this is the way I describe it: is you you know, just think of a box, a cube, and if you take that box and double you know, increase the size so that the the length of a side doubles. Mm-hmm. Well, then the area of one side of the box is going to go up as a square. And the volume of that box is going to go up as a cube as you make it bigger. Mm-hmm. And as you scale things up, our strength 
tends to be related to the cross section of our muscles. And so that goes up as a square as you get bigger. But the how much you weigh goes up as the cube. And so proportionally, you get heavier and heavier and heavier as you get bigger. And so you need these much larger muscle masses to, to even hold yourself up. This sounds awfully like you're saying that the movie Them is not a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I love the movie Them. Yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> it, and it, it's, it's a classic. And it, it's also, you know, you know, for its time, it was it was pretty sophisticated. And what I appreciate about it is, you know, that it had a little entomology lesson embedded in the movie. And other than the scaling law problems <clears throat> and the kind of ridiculous looking models they used to make this ant, um, you know, they had Professor Metcalf mm -hmm. who was, mm -hmm. you know, uh, called in to brief the Pentagon. And there's this whole section of the movie. It's a little, a little primer on ant biology and Professor Metcalf. It is like, it is. It's like, know. it's like the Mr. DNA in the Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I did. That was great. Yeah. Um, and his daughter's attractive and competent as well, which I like. And, and it, yeah, it was yeah. quite progressive for its day, you know, where, you know, she basically says, you know, back off, man, I'm a scientist. Exactly. I, <laughs> I you know, I'm going down on that ant nest because I'm the only one who knows. Oh, it's such a good film. Uh, well, so, speaking okay. of, of, of monster movies, I, our, yeah. unfortunately, we have to end our discussion. And our signature question we like to ask people when it's their first time on the show yeah. is... What's your favorite monster? Ah, well, you know, um, I've got a variety of favorite monsters. As we do, too. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, well, I feel, you know, I'm going to tell you about some ant monsters. But I'll, I'll be honest and say my, my favorite monster is the one in Predator. <laughs> oh, Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a, good a different one, one for us. <laughs> with, Ar with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh know. yeah, yeah. Uh, that was that was the coolest movie monster I've ever seen. Um, <clears throat> but but the ant monsters I like are I'm these sure. That <laughs> <laughs> really are you you know look for things from your worst nightmares, um, and they are a millimeter long and live in leaf litter and rotting wood and tropical rainforests. And are invisible to any normal people, but when you extract these things out of out of the leaf litter, look at them under microscopes, you see this wonderful world of of micro predators, and they're these weird little monsters with with big shield like faces, and you know they're like Halloween costumes, and and the the jaws are sticking out from beneath the shield and have these big wicked teeth, and you know they're just scary looking creatures and i you know a number uh, i had a great time a while back I, I did a you know the taxonomy of one of these groups and and named a bunch of new species and a lot of them um you know came from the um uh, from sort of central america from guatemala and, and honduras which are sort of which are the mayan homelands and so one of my students suggested i named them after you know, Mayan gods of, and, and monsters. And so I looked up some Mayan monsters and so I named a bunch of the species from 
for various gods of the underworld of <laughs> of the Mayan world. Very um, nifty. And, wow, love and, it. And apt, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they went Hunhau and, and Zipacna, um, and various other names. Oh, and then, yeah. Anyway, it was great. I had fun doing it. Fantastic. <laughs> Well, I hope we've inspired some of our younger listeners to maybe make this something that they want to do with their lives, looking into ant mysteries. Sounds like there's yeah. still lots of things to be discovered. Mm-hmm. You bet. And, you know, I got into studying insects when I was a kid because it was I could go outside and see things that I could never have imagined on my own. Um, and, and, and it was just endlessly entertaining. And so I recommend it to anyone. Oh, so Jack, is there? Uh, have you got any books or, or papers out that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Because uh, they're always very good about wanting to find out more about our guests. So, if there's just anything you'd like to to share with us that we can direct people to uh, to check out more of your stuff. Um, I don't, you know, I don't. I can't. There's nothing in particular in, in my own published work. Um, you know, unless you get really excited, and want to go delve into ant taxonomy um i do i do have one paper that i'm very proud of that it's quite oh from a while back that was discovering these ants in rainforest that that when they're threatened by army ants that, which will attack them they they plug the entrance to their nest with a little clay pellet and, oh, wow. and that was pretty cool yeah and they keep this little clay pellet right near the nest entrance so they make make a door and they Slam the door shut when they smell it. <laughs> How clever. Yeah. But for, for like a um, somebody who like discovers, like your son, perhaps, you know, discovers, mm-hmm. you know, ants. Oh, my gosh. These things are cool. Um, I just reviewed a book. I just I just saw it. Uh, it's just, just been published. Um, and it's by two authors and uh, you'll have to look it up and help, help I can do that. Yeah, we can do that. But yeah. it, it's called, yeah. uh, it's called the ants, a visual primer. Uh, I know one of the authors is Ben Blanchard because yeah, he's a guy I know. And then there's a, another person who's the second author. Um, so if you look that one up, that's a good one. No, that's great. Right. Yeah. I could put yeah. a link to that. Well, maybe we can link to your uh, university as well. Um, yep. yep. Website. Yeah. Your link. Sure. Although I don't update it very often. Yeah, <laughs> We're, we all tend to not do that. It's a fact. Date, quite dated, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. Thank no you so much, both for the work you do yeah. and for taking yes. the time to talk with us today. So, all right, it's yeah. been a pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, really, really cool to talk about ants, and my cool. son can't wait to listen to this episode. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. Take care. All right. Take care. See you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You were just listening to an interview with Professor Jack Longineau of the University of Utah discussing ants, their behaviors, and varieties, and capabilities. The next time you see a little trail of these creatures, I hope that you'll give them a bit of thought before you ignore them or stamp them out of existence. They're quite fascinating. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org 
forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. This week, I'd like to ask you to check the show notes for a donation campaign for Karen and Matt. They've been having a lot of financial problems this year and could use a hand. If you don't have access to the show notes, you can reach the page by going to bit.ly. That's a bit.ly short link. So it's bit.ly forward slash help Karen and Matt. That's all one word, all lowercase, and Matt has two T's. So bit.ly forward slash help Karen and Matt. See if you can help out a little. They really need it. Thanks. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you for listening. Monster House presentation.